WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yeah. Hey, man, how are you? Doing very well. Yourself? So, Aaron, set this up. Who are we about to meet? So, this is Skip Sherry. He lives in Brooklyn. And that is, we should say, Aaron Scott. He's a reporter who turned us on to Skip. And Aaron met up with Skip because he had this experience. That's common to a lot of people who moved to New York City. Just tell us where you, where you grew up. I grew up in the country outside of Athens, Ohio, on 54 acres of wooded land. And I would work all day as a kid in the heat. Hoeing and picking strawberries. Hauling water. Planting trees. He'd play in the woods. I loved the woods. But as he got older, he knew he couldn't stay in Athens. Why not? Well, he's a musician. He wanted to make a living at it. So he bounced around for a bit, so I finally, finally, and then finally at age 30... There was no place to go except for New York. So just, Wait, so it wasn't a matter that you wanted to live in New York? No, I didn't so want to live in New York. was your last option. It was my last option. And he hated it. Because it was ugly to me. You know, like, like which, too many humans, too, many, too much concrete. Yeah. You know, one theory about autism is that the things that come into an autistic kid's brain all have equal value. They don't, don't know how to sort through it. And when I first came to New York, it was, it was really... It was pretty overwhelming. I had decided to leave, for sure. But then, take us to the, the roof. I was lucky when I first moved here. So he's staying with a friend who lives in, in this big building in Brooklyn Heights. Right across from the Twin Towers. And it's 36 stories high. And he decides one lonely night to go up onto the roof. And there's this intense fog. And the Twin Towers, the bottom of them was covering the fog, but not the top. So it was like they were floating. And there's a little, like, a cuticle sliver of moon in the sky. And the foghorns are going, and the boats are slowly moving. And there's this breeze... And I had this, this brass penny whistle that my father had given me. And I was standing there, I was playing it. And I, I was really, suddenly something clicked. I was like, oh, that must, those are all the bridges. That's Williamsburg Bridge, that's the Manhattan Bridge. There's the Brooklyn Bridge. That's New York. It's small now. And I'm looking the, at the Statue of Liberty and my grandmother, Anastasia Panny, came uh, from Albania and they went to Ellis Island. I could see my history there, too. And I was, suddenly it hit me, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is like a coral reef. You can't see the people, but look at this beautiful structure they have created. 
and that fog and that air. It was just, the whole city was breathing. The whole, the nature was breathing. Everything was breathing. connected on a spiritual level to the city for the first time. And so, Skip decided to stay. For a while. For a while. All over the world, people are now moving. Of course, we know this from the country to the city. At this point, the world two years ago crossed this extraordinary benchmark. That's physicist Jeff West. Where more than half of the planet is now urbanized. 51%. Yeah, and that made us wonder. How do cities work? Is there some deep organic logic that holds all these people together? Or, as writer Jonah Lara puts it, are cities just these tumors of people on the landscape? I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab, and our topic today? Cities. Cities. I love them, but I don't know. All right, so in talking about cities, it was kind of hard to know where to start because every city has its own DNA, kind of. Yeah, its own unique feel. Yeah. Like, for instance, uh, let me just give you my own uh, stupid example here. So every time I go to St. Louis to visit my mom, yeah. I'm, I'm on the plane, I'm in my own kind of groove, and I step off the plane into the airport, and it's just like, with the first step, you just hit this wall of something is different. Like you feel the difference in your bones. Because. Well, that's the question. So is he there? Uh, I'm here. What gives the city its feel? Oh, is this Mr. Bob Levine? <laughs> this is Mr. Bob Levine. Mr. Bob Levine is a professor of psychology. California State University. And he thinks the answer to that question is time. Time. That each city warps time in its own unique way. My cities are my subjects. Now, he studied this idea for the past 30 years in all kinds of different ways. We looked at things like uh, percentage of people wearing watches. Uh, how long does it take bank tellers in each city to change a $20 bill? Really? Yeah. And then we 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 looked at talking speed. Really? Talking yeah, speed? Yeah, we'd get on the phone and uh, call post offices, since that seemed like something that would be available every place, and make a standard request. Would you tell me the difference between regular mail, certified mail, and insured mail? Okay, certified is when you just need someone to sign for it. Then he says they'd calculate? The number of syllables per second. Regular mail just goes air mail, you know, if it's out of Utah. Salt Lake City, Utah? 2.73 syllables per second. Then if you want the return receipt card to come back to your house... Springfield, Mass? Pay an extra 70 cents, you understand? 3.45 syllables per second. And this one? Uh, certified is when you want... Uh, Not really sure where it's from because the tape lost the ID, but it could be Nashville. Proof of mailing and then you want to know who, if you want a return receipt. And if it is Nashville. 2.65 syllables per second. Slow. Well, Springfield is like, phew. <laughs> but the whole talking thing was just really a prelude for Bob. It got him into what I think he's most known for. And what we find most fascinating. Uh, we actually looked at, at walking speed. Walking. walking. Yeah. Well, what I would 
do is I would get into a new city. And I am in Mumbai, India. Jerusalem. Buenos Aires City. Chiang Mai, Thailand. We actually put out a call to Radio Lab listeners everywhere. Uh, we're in Buchanan, in Liberia. To help us repeat the study. Okay, good morning, Radio Lab. I'm recording from Dublin in Ireland. Downtown Oslo. Copenhagen. I would get into a new city and... Step one. I would scope out main business and shopping area. I'm in the Midrachov. Topman Street. Step two. Get out some string. A roll of string. My red string. 60 feet long. 20 meters we use over here. We wouldn't say feet, really. Step three, use that string to measure out the distance. Now I just have to roll out the string. Now do you tape the one end to the sidewalk? Yeah. And I would just make a mark. Step four, and go undercover. Get in a corridor and, uh, you know. Be cool. You know, act like you're reading a paper. Or, or waiting for somebody. All right, found myself a discreet place. I found a pretty nice spot here. Do you use a stopwatch? I would use a stopwatch. A stopwatch. Trusty beep. Watch is working. Ready? Are you ready, Boots? Okay, I'm ready now. And go. Start walking. And it all goes quiet the minute I want to start. Brilliant. Thanks, Dublin. <laughs> this experiment was actually harder than you would think. <laughs> Much harder. Radio Lab people, this is not very easy to do. <laughs> Timing was an issue. People trying to sell you stuff. No, no, no. I don't need a shoe shine. Very good shine. Look at my color. No. Pigeons don't count. No, pigeons don't count. Okay. Are you ready, Boots? All, All together, together now. now. Start walking. Go. Step, 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 step. Actually, it didn't sound like that at all. They weren't in sync, as you can imagine. Every city had its own beat. Start. Which on some level we knew, but still the range was pretty amazing. Stop. 12.2. Oslo. 14.4 seconds. Mumbai. 27 seconds. Buchanan. Liberia. Wow. (laughs) 13.8. Buenos Aires. 12.13. Mexico City. 10.1 seconds. Copenhagen. 21.5 seconds. Chiang Mai. 11.57. Portland. 15 and a half seconds. Jerusalem. Just to break it down, on the high end, you've got... Step, steps, you're on it. Step, 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 step. The Dubliners. Okay, she was 9.5, and that's 10.4. Who take, on average, 10.76 seconds to cover 60 feet. Compare that to Buchanan, Liberia. Step, 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 step. Looking step, around, step, something step, actually step, on the head. Step, she got a teen pink step, blouse. Step, Whose walkers covered the same distance in about... 21 seconds. 21 seconds. So if you want to think about it in football terms, by the time the Dubliner has scored a touchdown... <laughs> Guy from Buchanan, Liberia, is somewhere, I guess, around midfield, something like that. <laughs> and the spooky thing, according to Bob Levine, is if you do these under the same conditions, same place, you will get the same time. These times don't change. Dublin is always step, about step, this. Steps, you're on it. Step, step, step. And step, Buchanan, step, Liberia, step, is always around this. Step, step, step. Step, Manhattan, step, as we found, is step, right about here, step, usually. Step, step, with thunder, step, 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 in pink. No Dublin, but not bad. But why the consistency? What is it, what is it that makes that walking speed? Yeah. Where does it come from? You know, I mean, is anybody beating the drum? How well can you change the walking speed? Say a bunch of us got together and decided that we were just going to up it by 5% on a given day. Will we get everybody to do it? And will they even notice the difference? Do we make the city? Or does the city make us? Thank you to our walkers. Milena. Buenos Aires. Mustafa Kumer. Liberia. Jonathan. 
Jerusalem. Mira Kilman in Copenhagen. Mutter Oslo. Aaron Scott, Portland, Oregon. Perry Santinacho, Thailand. Grant Fuller. Mexico City. Itadi and I'm in Mumbai. Markham Nolan of Dublin in Ireland. Props also to Daniel Estring and Anna Sussman. Why? <laughs> I don't know, because they didn't, they didn't say their name, so we oh, can put them in there. Okay, so getting back to that question I asked a second ago. Why is it that cities develop particular beats? Yeah. I mean, is it because the city does it to the people? Or the people do it to the city. Yeah. And we ran into a couple of guys who may at least have a, the start of an answer. Yes. Um. A couple of physicists, oddly enough, Hi, named this, Jeffrey uh, West and Luis Betancourt. This is Jeffrey, and there's Luis on the other side of the I'm table. Here as well. <laughs> <laughs> cool. They're at the Santa Fe right. Institute in New Mexico. And lots of mesas and mm-hmm. so on. Nothing like the cities we just visited. It's almost biblical in its expanse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the blue skies just sort of make you brave and contemplative <laughs> and all those good things. Brave enough, in fact, to claim from their high desert perch mm-hmm. that these beats, the meter of every city that we've just been to actually has underneath it a kind of logic. If you tell me the average speed of walking in some city X. Take our Rochester, New York, where people walk at about this speed. 60 feet in 12.67 seconds. If you don't tell him Rochester, you just tell him the number of beats, he will tell you The population is maybe one and a quarter million people. Actual population, 1.03 million people. And the average wage, about $16,000 a year. Actual average wage, $15,588. Wow. But how? Uh, Let me ask you a precise question. (laughs) Are you 100% correct? Are you 80% (laughs) correct? No, of course. Some things you will score close to 100%, Mm -hmm. other things 80%. But if you start with just the number of footfalls per unit of time, they can tell you all kinds of other things about the same place. I can tell you how much crime there is in the city. Income, wages, GDP. Number of colleges, restaurants. Fancy restaurants. Number of theaters, police. The number of patents that are being produced here. Cultural events per capita, number of theaters. Uh, libraries. The number of AIDS cases it's going to have this year. Really? Really? All of these things are correlated in a quantitative, and I use the word, predictive fashion. Wait, are you saying that just from the number of footsteps per given time that you can tell, like, can you tell me how many libraries there are? Yeah. Yes. We could yeah, tell you how many you should expect. Wow. How many things can you count when you're... Oh, presumably, <laughs> you know, an infinite number. Yeah. But, but it's limited We're, by the things for which there are data. They've got data from the U.S. Census. That's Jonah Lehrer. He's written about Luis and Jeff, and he's the one who kind of got us thinking about all this. Data from Japan. In China. Data from from sociological surveys, some data on cell phones. And when they put all these numbers together, they discovered a deep pattern. This call comes from the footsteps. No, not the footsteps. What do you mean? Even the footsteps are a reflection of this deep and fundamental pattern that governs everything. Just one fact. What is it? (laughs) You really want to know? Yeah, what is it? (laughs) Size. Size. How many people live there? Size matters. Size is the largest determinant of all characteristics of a city. Right. They would say, tell me the size of the city and I can explain the vast majority of all these different variables that we can measure. Right. As a city scales up, they say. From 100,000 to 200,000, from a million to two million, from five million to 10 million. Everything about it, all those things that they've been measuring, they scale up too. But they scale up according to a a very simple mathematical formula. 
It does not matter that New York has big skyscrapers and is on the ocean and that Boise is in the Rocky Mountains, that uh, San Francisco is on San Francisco Bay. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. That can't be. That can't be. No, I, I, I was with you right up until the last, to that last point. I mean, you go to the Midwest and it's landlocked and, and then you go to That's a right. port city and it's on a yeah. port. I mean, that's got to matter. It matters, but these actually are superficial effects and account for only 10, 20% of their variation. What they're saying is that those specificities, the, the local history, is in large part insignificant. What? That it is completely overwhelmed by these generic laws of urban scaling. That, to me, is a very interesting and surprising idea, simply because we don't think of cities like that at all. No, we certainly do not. That's because you're not a physicist, so you don't think you know, abstractly in that regard. Well, why should I? Because sometimes it can be very useful. Remember, what these guys have done is they've just created an average profile for every size city. So if you're a 1 million or 7 million or 12 million, here's how many things you should have. Now you can ask, okay, let's look specifically at that city and ask, is it overperforming or underperforming? Right. So what are some cities that are overperforming for their size? Uh, of the large cities, San Francisco is quite an innovative city. Um, New York's about average. About in terms average? of patents. patents in terms New York's below in terms average? Of, New York produces, <laughs> roughly speaking, the number of patents it should for a size. You produce, for York. example, a, about uh, twice as many patents as Boston. We do? Hey, Uh-oh. that's something. Okay. That's like that. something. But you should have produced many more given the, the size difference between about... He's just, whatever, we're just whatever. average because they're counting patents. I mean, who may, who, we don't have engineers. This is one of the problems with their larger theory, which is that they're relying on data that the U.S. Census collected. So that's a real blind spot. If you're counting fabulous, if we ever can figure out a way to count fabulous. <laughs> yeah, because he has a point. You're not taking into account what it actually... the experience of living in a place. Mm-hmm. Well, what, this, what a theory cannot do is tell you about the essence of New York, the New Yorkness of New York. So to speak, the soul of the city. And where does that come from? Who knows? (laughs) I mean, I think that's such a broad question. Well, obviously it has something to do with lots of people being jammed into a tight space, bumping into each other. kind of people who move there. What the physicists would call human friction. And that's a story you can't really tell in math, but you can hear it. Take Skip. He gave producer Aaron Scott a tour of his block in Brooklyn. Listen to who he bumps into every day. So he took us on this tour. First place we went was this Jamaican body shop. Body shop is in cars? Yeah. Collision specialist. I mean, it's basically these, you know, West Indies Jamaican guys listening to reggaeton and hip hop. Reggae. No, well, I, I like all kind of music. It's like all right, it's one place. And across across the street from this is Kinderspiel. A hidden Orthodox Jewish cookie bakery. Around the corner from that. It's a butcher that um, sells live goats and chickens. And here are the goats. <laughs> and on the corner is a, a Hispanic Pentecostal church. And every Sunday, they give it up to God with this exceedingly enthusiastic band. And I I huddle at the window. And I think this is the best music in the world. I feel that deeply. 
And then across the street from that one is a mosque. And it's beautiful on the inside. Wow. Across the street, there's this big building. And the proprietor of this space is a gay foot fetish film producer. Show me your feet. Show me your feet. <laughs> so wait a second, you've got Jamaicans, Orthodox Jews with the cookies, Hispanics, Jesus, Allah, goats, and gay porn? Show me your feet. All on the same block? Absolutely. For me, that's the hammer and the nails. That's the raw ingredient. Now I'm going to take that home and I'm going to assemble it into a song. And when you heard his music, mm -hmm. could you hear all that stuff? Some of it is clearer than others. The sounds of the neighborhood, like the reggaeton music of the, the West Indies auto body shops, he kind of takes them and then filters it through some device that makes it sound like bells. Oddly enough, the day that Aaron spoke with Skip was the day Skip decided... He's leaving New York City and he put in his notice. Which I guess makes his latest album, Sonic New York, kind of a Dear John letter to the city. You can hear it on our website, radiolab.org. And Robert Levine's book, the one about walking and time and stuff, yep. is called A Geography of Time. More information about that, too, on our website, radiolab.org. Also, you can subscribe to our podcast there. This is Robert Levine. I've been told that... Radiolab is funded in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Produced by WNYC and distributed by NPR. WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. I'm Terrence McKnight. Join me for a new season of the podcast where people tell stories about the classical music that shaped their lives. I'm Tom Hiddleston. My name is Natalie Joachim. I'm Marin Alsop, and you're listening to The Open Ears Project. You're going to meet some incredible people and maybe, like them, fall in love with a piece of music. The Open Ears Project. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hey, I'm Jana Bumrad. I'm Robert Krilwich. This is Radio Lab. And our subject right now is cities. So far, we've tried to pin down the character of a place with math or with a story or with some music. But it's like trying to take a snapshot of something that's growing and changing all the time. And that feeling that Skip had up on the rooftop, like the city was breathing, well, maybe the city really is. Like a living thing. Well, yes, in some ways, that's exactly right. They evolve, they grow. Think about it, says Jeff West. Every day, every minute, in comes energy and food, trucks, 
water, people out goes, garbage, ideas, songs, stories, people, energy in, energy out, energy in, energy out. That's just what a city needs to do, says Jeff. Quote, metabolize food, so to speak, because without that, organisms and cities and so on will simply decay. So how does a city stay alive? What does it really take for a city to grow? Well, that question got me thinking about New York and led me to a place I've been wanting to go for a while. reverb a little bit. Where are you? Underground. Oh. 100 feet underground. So this is the sound of one of New York City's water tunnels. I'm standing in it. It's exactly what you would imagine. A big tube. It's about nine feet wide, nine feet up. Perfectly polished cement. And uh, it seems to just go forever. So this is basically, uh, like you might call it a smaller artery inside the city's circulatory system. When this is online in a couple of months, it will pump up to 290 million gallons a day. Something like that, which is an awesome thought in the literal sense of the word. It's, uh, when you walk through the streets of Manhattan... This is Catherine Mallon from the Department of Environmental Protection. These water tunnels are anywhere from 200 to 800 feet below your feet. They just, they're, they're silently there, and when you turn on your tap... And you take a drink... You are basking in a daily convenience that is born from blood, sweat, and death. To explain... You really have to go back to a time when there were no tunnels. This would be uh, 1790, 1800 or so. Around that time, says historian Diane Galusha, New York's population... Was booming. It tripled in in 20 years. And you suddenly had 100,000 people all getting their water from the same spot. A large freshwater pond called the Collect. And they had pigs running around by the hundreds and the chamber pots out in the streets. And there were livestock in lower Manhattan at the time. People had cows for milk. And so when they died, they had to do something with them. So often, she says, they'd throw their dead cows and everything else in the pond. The same pond that they were drinking from? Right. No way. (laughs) Not surprisingly. As the city grew. People got sick. In 1798, there was this yellow fever epidemic, killed a couple of thousand people, and cholera and typhoid. City officials were like, this has to change. And uh, as if to uh, accentuate the point, in 1835, there was this huge fire. The fire department rushes out to put out the fire, but they can't. It was in December, and the rivers froze, and they couldn't get water to the fires. If you don't have water to fight the fire, the city burns down. It's pretty simple. Yeah, 700 buildings. So that's our starting point, a New York City that could not grow. And by the way, the guy we just heard? John Chick Donahue. He's a sand dog, part of the long line of guys who blasted New York out of its poopy pond phase and into its future. Can I ask you a question? Why why are you guys called sand hogs? Why wouldn't you be called tunnel blasters or earth movers or something that's more... Do you have any idea where that name came from? Yeah, it comes from the dictionary. Really. And I love to look in people's faces when they ask me that, and I, that's the answer. It's described in Webster's Dictionary as a, a laborer who digs or works in sand. The original sand hogs were the soft ground guys. 
compressed air. That's where you so, no, To back air. up for a second, when the city decided to scrap the pond in favor of clean water from upstate, it faced a couple of challenges. And this is also true when they decided to build the subway system. Namely, nature. Like, how do you, for example, build a tunnel under a river? Well, they were sandhogs. So they went down, they dug. Literally dug with what we call muck sticks, shovels, under the river. 50, 60, 100 feet under the bottom of the river. Men with shovels, excavating ground. That's Nick Sokol. I'm a tunneling engineer. Generally, it's a dark, dank place. Now, the obvious engineering problem is that the river bottom, which is now above their heads, is soft. Sands and silts and gravels. How do you keep that from not falling on your head? That's when uh, compressed air started being used. The basic idea, says Nick, is that these huge pumps would basically pump air into the tunnels at such pressure that it would basically push the ceiling up. Exactly, so the mud doesn't cave in on you. But compressed air holds that thing from collapsing in on you. Usually. The engineers on the shore had to get the pressure just right, says Chick. Because if they didn't, you'd get this absolutely terrifying situation that is maybe the best cocktail party story ever. We used to give an award. We haven't given it in many years. We call it the Marshall Maybe Award. They were doing one of those tunnels to Brooklyn. The men are up in the face of the tunnel. They're digging away. And then, very suddenly, there's a blowout. In the face of the wall, a puncture hole develops, tiny at first, but it quickly becomes... Bigger and bigger. Till it's the size of... Sort of like an eye. Then a whole head, and all the compressed air rushes into that hole. It would be like if you shot a hole through an airplane, all the air would... Hats are flying into this hole, lanterns, shovels, then a guy goes into the hole. A guy? Yeah, a human being, into the hole. Thunk! <gasps> another guy. Then a third. The third guy must have been the luckiest sandhog in the world. This is an article from the New York Times. As I struck the mud, it, it felt as if something was squeezing me tighter than it had ever been squeezed before. He blew through all that 60 feet of muck, then through the river, up to the surface. The pressure blew him right up into the air. They tell me I was thrown about 25 feet in above the water when I came out, but I don't remember that. <laughs> That's remarkable. And he came back down and landed right alongside a police boat. In the water? In the water. So they took him, cleaned him up, he went home, he came to work the next day. That's why they gave him the award. That's why the award is, no, I'm not kidding you. In the early days, no one kept track of how many people died building New York's tunnels. The number is probably in the thousands. So wait, this, this right here, this plaque that we're looking at. This plaque was uh, donated. This is Richie Fitzsimmons. He's the current head of the Sandhogs Union. And we're standing in front of a big stone plaque with two dozen names on it's it. It's in memory of all the uh, people that we lost in tunnels in New York City since 1970. You know, since we started keeping records. Some more little photos come on in. Later, he showed me a picture which really underlined the point. It's a picture of him on his first compressed air job. Oh, wow, look at that. This is myself. He's 19, he's huddled with five other guys, and they're in this crowded tunnel, and they're all black with soot. And he points to each guy in turn. Dead, 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 had cancer, still alive, still alive. If you ask any of the Sandhogs why they do this, 
Mostly they'll tell you, well, we, we've got to. The city can't grow without its tunnels. But you also get answers like this from Chick. <coughs> he says when you're down there and it's pitch black and you're just walking, walking along. And you're 600 foot under Manhattan. You're approximately 30th Street or something. You're in the middle of the greatest city in the world. <laughs> nobody even knows you exist. Nobody has a, nobody has a clue. It's just, it's just beautiful. It's just, it's a, it's a weird place. It's like being on a planet somewhere. He says when he's literally in this rock that is half a billion years old, he sometimes feels very humble. You're in the middle of the earth, and you, know, you know, this is, you want to see nature, here it is. That's ro a romantic way of saying it. Yeah. Uh, uh, the human reality of it is... Here's Richie's take. Remember when you were a kid and they used to give you the ant farms and the big ant farms were big? We are ants. The ants, there's so freaking many of them that if you got to squish a few and if they got to use each other to step over each other to, to, to keep that whole thing, that's it. That doesn't sound very grand the way you're putting it. Like you that's guys. reality. Our job is to conquer nature, he says, plain and simple. We're builders. Human beings are builders. And collectively, there's nothing that we can't do. Nothing. October 14th, 1842. Oh, it was a huge celebration. Hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers line Broadway. There was firing of cannons. Then the ringing of church bells. Fireworks, even. And at the end of it all, says Diane, everybody gathered in City Hall Park. And they turned a big fountain on and... Water shot 50 feet into the air. New York City would never be the same. Now it could finally be a city. But here's where you start to wonder a little bit about the real legacy of cities. What you see almost immediately after this moment, according to Diane, is that water usage skyrocketed. Suddenly you had indoor plumbing. All the new buildings were being outfitted with water closets and... Kids were playing in the hydrants all day long. And to make a long story short, just 10 years later, the city is out of water again. So they got to build more tunnels and then more. And if you follow the water in those tunnels back upstate, you see that the city is gobbling up reservoirs. One after another. Dozens, which meant it had to kick people off that land. A little thing called eminent domain. Their villages would have to be... Bulldozed and burned. Cemeteries. Uprooted. Do you see what's happening? I mean, you could see this city that we live in as a kind of monster. It's just always hungry. Eat, 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 eat. Oh, wait a second, because like, like there is another logic available here. Like if you took all the people in New York City, all those New um, Yorkers, you know, if, if you had every inhabitant of New York City suddenly left New York City and moved to small towns all across America, you would need a ton of resources to make that possible. That's Joan Alera again, by the way. So in a sense, New York City saves lots of forests. Saves, saves lots of water. And the reason why... Well, that takes us back to Jeff and Luisha's ideas about cities. Well, I suppose... Because uh, it all started years ago. Jeff, at the time, was studying, uh, this time was living things. Let's go back to biology for a moment. Uh, he looked at a huge variety of creatures, and for each one, he collected a, you know, data. Everything from its uh, metabolic rate to the length of its aorta, how quickly it breathes. And he discovered something kind of fascinating about creatures as they grow bigger and bigger. If you double the size of an organism, you double the number of cells that need to be sustained. Uh -huh. You would therefore 
expect that the energy you need to supply would double. You've doubled the number of customers, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. No. No. That is not the case. Instead of doubling, it needs less energy per unit cell to sustain the whole organism. So there is a kind of... So wait a second. That means that the, that the cell is somehow doing more with less? Right. Does it also mean, though, that an elephant cell somehow is more efficient than a mouse cell? That's correct. Huh. And Jeff says the way they do that is pretty simple. They just move slower. They process energy at a slower rate. So if you take a mouse cell, a cell that lives in a mouse and does its work, brings in resources, spits out the waste, brings in more resources, spits out the waste, it does this to a particular beat. But now, says Jeff, if you listen to an elephant cell, bringing in stuff and then pumping out the waste, it's moving obviously slower, so it's using less energy in a given moment, which makes it more efficient. And what does that have to do with cities? Turns out, cities work kind of the same way. In cities, you see the same kind of efficiency when it comes to infrastructure. Electricity. Uh, length of roads. Water. Length of pipes. Length of electrical cables. Gasoline. How much gas is consumed. Here's the point. The bigger the city, the less roads you need per capita. What does per capita mean anyways? Per person. Per person. The less electrical cable lines you need per capita, the less gasoline stations you need per capita, et cetera, et cetera. So every unit of pipe carries more water, more sewage. Every line of electrical wire carries more. All right, all right. But mm-hmm. did, J- Jeff, does that mean then that if, uh, if I move to a bigger and bigger city, do I, in a sense, become greener? The bigger the city oh. I live in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. It's a very question. good question. Yeah. And this is where Luis and Jeff... I think the case is still a little bit out. And even Jonah. It gets complicated when you ask, are people more or less efficient? This is when uh, everybody starts to throw in all of these caveats and qualifications. All these other variables. But, but the, and, uh, the equivocations and ambivalations and prognostications and dipolations. <laughs> let me just tell you what I think. I think you'd better. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we all love to talk about how green we are when we live in cities. This is something everybody in a city talks about. Right? Because we are. Because we, we take the subway and the bus. Yeah, we take we the don't subway. drive. Okay. And driving right. is the most energy-consuming yeah, thing. But, listen to me, the analogy that you just gave me, mm-hmm. it does not work. Okay, you said that cells, as they go from small bodies to big bodies, slow down. Yep. Well, cities, the opposite happens, of course. As cities get bigger, each individual unit in that city moves faster. Thank you, Jonah. We speed up. That's true. We learned this earlier, and this is not trivial, okay? Because as we speed up, we bump into more people. We have more ideas. We invent new things. We want more things. We want more. More and more of of everything. New tastes, new ideas. More interactions, more human friction. More. More choices. Yeah, a better life. That's what a city is all about. I, 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 is there anything wrong with that? No, not at all. But there's, all I'm saying is there's a cost to it that we don't acknowledge. Weston Betancourt did this back-of-the-envelope calculation where it's long been known that a body at perfect rest, if you lie in your bed all day in a coma, you will consume about 90 watts of electricity. That, that's called your basal metabolic rate. If you're a hunter-gatherer living in some tribe in New Zealand, you will consume about 240 watts of electricity every day. The energy just simply to stay alive plus the energy you need to hunt and gather. However, if you are living in America, the wattage required to drive your car, run your computer, make your clothes. Heat, air conditioning, being able to go to movies. On and on and on. All of the various things that constitute our life, if you add all those up, 
your lifestyle requires about 11,000 watts of electricity every day. So Whoa. That's, that's more energy than a blue whale requires. Now, some of you listening, particularly if you're an engineer, you may think, wait a second, why are you calling these watts when it's power through a system, power through a human? Call them joules. That's the technically correct word. And then you'd be right, wouldn't you? But the numbers are the same, so let's, we'll just call them watts. So one way to look at what cities have enabled us to do is basically live like 300 million blue whales in America. Are you sure that cities are causing this development, that it begins and ends with cities? Yeah, you can't assign it all to cities. But that psychology of wanting more, that's a city psychology. That's why people come to cities. And then the lifestyle that grows up around that gets broadcast out on TV and radios and movies, which mm. are city industries, that's out true. to the country. And if you just take a historical look at this, like the last 300 years have seen more and more consumption, right? Yeah. And that trend, says Jonah? It's, it's, it's grown in neat parallel with the growth of cities. Um, cities have enabled that kind of growth. Even if you guys are, are, are right, mm-hmm. and we know that half the planet already is living in cities. 80% of America. So yes, there are more people, I'll agree with that. More choices, asking for more, more consumption, more energy, more, 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 more. <laughs> Even if that's so, cities, because they also are ingenious, and they come up with all these new ideas, maybe cities will solve the problem. Right now, Jad, someone somewhere in Calcutta is about to invent the super light bulb elevator telephone pipe that will make it possible for another (laughs) 200 quadrillion people to live together in peace, (laughs) harmony, and beauty until the next round. All right, you go ahead and cling to that optimism. (laughs) And you, of course, can go hang yourself in the corner. So we'll be right back. (laughs) I'm Robert Krolwich. That's Jad. This is Radiolab. Hey, this is John calling from the city of brotherly love. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. I'm Ira Flato, host of Science Friday. For over 30 years, our team has been reporting high-quality news about science, technology, and medicine. News you won't get anywhere else. And now that political news is 24-7, our audience is turning to us to know about the really important stuff in their lives. Cancer, climate change, genetic engineering, childhood diseases. Our sponsors know the value of science and health news. For more sponsorship information, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org. Hey, I'm Jana Boomrod. I'm Robert Grilwich. This is Radio Lab. And our subject today is cities. cities. And if cities are like organisms, then one thing we should say about every organism that's ever been they die. Yeah, they die. So you would think cities would die. You would. But Jonah says no. Cities die very, very rarely, and they almost never die if there hasn't been a total, total catastrophe, physical catastrophe. Which is weird, you know, you know if you think about it, says Jonah, because, like, take a company. And sometimes they can get very big so that they include hundreds of thousands of employees. And yet they die all the time. Of the 30 companies in the original Dow Jones, only three are still in the Dow Jones Index. 
If you took 30 cities from the 1920s, I can guarantee you all 30 of those randomly selected cities would still exist on the map. And the question is why? Why don't they die like every other social organization? What is it about cities that gives them this crazy persistence? That question led us to a place that by all measures should have died long ago, a place called Centralia. Okay, so we begin on the side of, where are we? We're on Route 61 in uh, eastern Pennsylvania. Right. This is Pat, by the way. He's a producer at Radio Lab. I know who Pat is. Thank you very much. Anyhow. We're waiting for this guy named Tom to meet up with us. Hey there, are you Tom? Yep. Tom uh, Hynoski. How you doing? I'm Good. Jack. What's up with you guys? When did you get here? Just now? Just now. Just happened to be and we had asked Tom to show us around his town. Probably the best place to go is up on the hill up there and, and look, you know, you could look over everything. Okay. Should we do that? Sure. So we go up on the hill with Tom. We actually meet up with another Tom. Tom Dempsey. I was the former postmaster here. So we now have two here. Toms. Tom, Tom. Very right? confusing. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, the four of us stare down into a valley that used to have a town in it. It was all houses. It was all streets with homes on them all over here. Now, Centralia is just trees. Well, right down here was the... Uh, Tom, too, points to some trees. Borough High School. Over here. More trees. Setting Nice's Church. There's still there some dead There used to be branches. a playground right at the bottom of this little hill right here. You can still see the bars. And this is where things get a little strange. I mean, right next to the swing set, where kids used to laugh their little heads off, there's a hole in the ground. Right there, I can see some steam coming out of the ground spewing steam. And Pat and I would later discover when we got close to it that that steam was really hot. Feel it. It's hot and wet. Oh my god. Ha! Motherfucker. Where exactly is the fire? Underneath this. Like how far? Here. 50 feet maybe. So 50 feet down. If it is. Cass, the smell doesn't bother you guys? What smell? You you can smell it. It smells like burning tires here. That must be from New York that's stuck in your nose. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. It really did smell. But the thing no one can deny is that underneath our feet, there's a web of coal mines that stretches for miles. 40 miles in each direction, 30 miles. And somewhere in those mines is a fire that's been burning for 40 years. It has either destroyed this town or not, depending on who you ask. Uh, This is Pat right here. My name is Mary Lou Gahan. I'm 82 years old, and I lived in Centralia most of my adult life. What year were you born in, if you mind me asking? What year was I born? Yeah. 1927. Mary Lou Gahan grew up in a town not too far from Centralia. Tiny little farm town called Burnsville. And when she got to Centralia, she said it was... Uh, Well, it was like moving to the city. It had a legion, it had a drugstore, it had... it had a couple thousand people. Lots of bars was in Centralia. Somebody told me one time there were 22 barrooms in Centralia. I don't know if that was true because I didn't frequent barrooms at that age. And all these places that she just mentioned were right on top of each other. So when you were walking around, you'd see people all the time. Just take, for instance, you go to the post office after work. I'll show you where the post office was. Tommy would be there sometimes. I was postmaster here for a number of years. Wait, you're pointing into a forest. It's hard to imagine this stuff. It is hard Look to imagine. And I'd yeah, I walk to the post office because your mail wasn't delivered. So I'd go up to the post office, I'd get my mail, and you'd meet people in the post office, you'd meet people coming out of the post office. Now this was a, a good football field here. Now it's all growing in, nobody's cutting the grass, there's bushes growing up in it now. Tommy Dempsey would have a story. I would be an hour till I got home. A whole hour. But this is how Centralia was. Okay, fast forward. It's Memorial Day, 1962. 
This is where the borough used to dump all their garbage. Now the fire started, I'd say just about right here where I'm standing right now. Tommy points to a little patch of nondescript yellow grass. <laughs> like right here. How did it start? Do we have any idea? Well, it started... The most likely scenario, he says. We also heard this from a, a writer named Joan Quigley. I'm the author of The Day the Earth Caved In. Is that people used to heat their homes with coal, and maybe somebody threw their ashes into the garbage, which then ended up onto the dump. It caught the whole thing on fire. Furniture, rugs, kerosene cans. Which, Joan says, wasn't that unusual. Some of the former firefighters said, you know, the dumps got on fire all the time. And usually the fires just fizzled out on their own. But this one, for whatever reason, before it did, wandered a little bit. And it found its way over to an old exposed... Exposed coal vein there. Basically an old strip mine yeah. that should have been covered, but wasn't. So there was just a big open cavity. When the fire got in there and... Hit that coal vein. Poof. Fire trucks came up here and they hosed down the fire until they thought it was out and they left. The following day, somebody says, oh, we see smoke and steam coming out of the ground up there. So they came back the next day and they tried to uh, get the fire out and they couldn't very well do it. They weren't getting it. Because at that point, it was too late. I wouldn't know where to start with this mine fire. I wouldn't know where to start. The first place that fire camped out was right underneath Mary Lou's house. And from that point on, it kind of took over her life. My goodness, are these these your scrapbooks? When we were there, she pulled out these two gigantic scrapbooks. This is going to take four men to lift this book. Each book is literally three feet tall, and they document in painful detail how that fire split the town in two. This is, this is how intense I was with this mine fire. That she heaved open the book, and she showed us this picture of three people crouched on the street in front of a hole. This is my husband, my son, and me. And husband holding a thermometer. We, we dropped this down on a, like a fishing pole down on the... Oh, yeah. like your ice fishing. Yeah. This is their way of measuring the temperature of the fire below. And what did it read? It was pretty high. 100 degrees high? 850, something what? like that. Under your house? No, this was on the street. But the street right in front of her house. Oh, wow. And the garage was that. the garage was right as you can see the garage here. It was right there. She showed us another picture of her standing in her garage in front of a trench that they dug, and inside that trench, you see flames. Oh, we used to go out at night and watch the that you know, the glowing and the embers. Fire up there got so bad that some of Mary Lou's neighbors actually got government money to leave their houses. They were the first people bought out. Never once, like at the beginning, did you think like, oh, maybe we should just get out of here. No. There's a fire hundred yards away. Never. I never went to her. Instead, she did exactly the opposite. This was my husband, and this was a big official, and this was She dug in her heels and started writing letters. Congressman Nelligan. Musto. We wrote letters to him. We talked on the phone with him. I don't. I, I, I couldn't tell you all the congressmen we talked. Four governors, all the Harrisburg officials, and they were promising everything but the sun. But it never happened. But other than the people who lived on that street, many many people in town didn't have to worry or even think about the mine fire. Nobody ever believed that the fire was was even serious in Centralia. My husband, myself, and Helen Woomer. Oh, so everyone else was kind of uh, like, ah, whatever. It's, it's uptown. The fire is uptown. All that changed on Valentine's Day, 1981. We're up a little bit higher. Because of this guy. A fellow named Todd Domboski, who at the time was just a boy. I was 12. 12-year-old boy. He was playing outside. In his grandmother's backyard. And um, I noticed uh, some small wisps of smoke coming out of the ground. So he went over um, to take a look. As I, I bent down to investigate, I, I noticed that my... Feet were starting to sink in. It was uh, really soft. and It was like quicksand. The more I tried to struggle, the more uh, I was just opening the hole larger. And you wound up sliding. To my thighs, to my waist. 
until he was... I was under. All the way underground. Surrounded by hot steam. The smoke was so intense. It smells like rotten eggs. Whoa. Well, I was screaming for my cousin. And uh, his cousin heard him and came running over. Plucked me out like a flower. What happened to him changed everything. Because suddenly, reporters were everywhere. Reporters from the Evening Herald. Nightline. National news media. Everybody pointing their cameras at Todd. I seen smoke, so I went over to see if it was the mine fire, and when I did, I just fell right through. And doing stories about this town that was on fire. Beneath Centralia, the underground coal fires still burn hot. Centralia is an inferno. That Literally. attention. Parts of Centralia uh, look like the outskirts of hell. Would focus on what had to happen for the town. It wasn't long, says Joan, before some of the younger residents. Very small, informal formal group of young parents organized a march down Locust Avenue down the main street in town. How many people are we talking about here? A couple dozen with red ribbons around their arms and their wrists. And they walked two by two down the main street of Centralia like striking miners. Mary Lou glared at them as they passed. I, I was bitter. I was bitter with... They claimed they were for helping the town to be saved, but they weren't. What they were really for, she figured was getting out. They were looking for funds to get relocated. She even hated their name. Concerned citizens against the Centralia mine fire. She thought, how are they the concerned citizens? She's the concerned citizen. She had been fighting the fire for years. Yeah. The media was there taking video. Cameras filmed the marchers looping red ribbon over everything. And Mary Lou's neighbor Helen cut the red ribbons down. Because we fought so hard to try to save Centralia. Why did they want to do this? If, people if, like if Mary Lou like and Helen Wilmer. They started telling people. No, no, no. Here's why it's safe. Here's why you should stay. And while parents from the other group were on TV complaining about gases. In the home. And it could be a death house. Mary Lou, Helen, and a few others started up their own committee. The United Centralia Area Mine Task Force. They got she on TV themselves. And in the community, they started printing up flyers. Fact sheets. And handing them out. Yep, door to door. Okay, I call this meeting to order. At town meetings, the dueling committees would get up there and make their case. But this is a borehole. Get yelled down. Will not protect us. Would it get? Would it get rowdy? Absolutely ridiculous. Families fighting against families, neighbors against neighbors. There's Lamb. They split the town apart. Who's that? David Lamb. This guy, David Lamb, ran a motorcycle shop in town, and he was also a member of this concerned citizens organization. And one morning, at about 4 a.m., he was sleeping in an apartment. And someone threw a Molotov cocktail through his plate glass window. Mary Lou showed us an article from a scrapbook. Related to Lamb's activities as an officer of concerned citizens. Wow. This is no joke. This is like the Sopranos, but worse. This this was really, it was really bad. And in the midst of all this chaos, Congress started considering a bill that would basically let them buy out the town. Some observers believe that for about $50 million, Centralia could be totally bought out. So the mayor decided, let's hold a referendum. And the issue was stay or go. In the weeks leading up to the referendum, Mary Lou and Helen again went door to door, talking to people they'd known their whole lives. And pretty much everyone they talked to said, I really want to stay. My mother wants to stay. August 11th. 1983. Shortly before 10 this evening, Centralia's mayor announced the results. There's 545 votes votes cast. 200 voted to stay. 345 voted to relocate. I was crying, yes. In my heart, I never thought that would happen, ever. You thought that everybody would 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 stay? Maybe 40 people might decide, or maybe 30. 
But that was devastating to, to know that so many people wanted to move. Hmm. It was. And when you look at her scrapbooks, everything stops after that day. Yeah, this is just throwing in papers. Wow, it just stopped so abruptly. Yep. I was, I was mad and disgusted and... I didn't yeah. want to. I didn't want to yeah. do no more about it. That was the end. Almost immediately after that vote, Congress bought out the town. People started packing up and leaving. Now let me see where there's. I have some that has the big numbers. Up. Mary Lou told us right that when you decided to leave, a demolition crew would actually come to your house and big, paint. Big red letters like this. A big number one, in front of your house. It looked like blood was dripping off. Oh, it's like you were marked. Yeah. What would happen? She says when your house was marked, is that your neighbors would see it. They'd get nervous, and then suddenly their houses would be marked. And then suddenly the whole block would be marked. And I knew every one of them quite well, and I think I stopped talking to some of them. She'd see them on the street, she says, and look the other way. I didn't like any of them. Really? Mm-hmm. And one day, in the fall of 1987, these divisions caused something to happen that is just kind of like mythically bad. Yeah. It involved a married couple who'd been in the town. Well, she'd been there her whole life. And um, as a couple, they were divided. One wanted to stay, one wanted to go. I think it was the wife who didn't want to leave. And the husband, well, he was a shovel runner, and he, he wanted to take the money you get from your location and get out. Their neighbors were moving, had moved. The houses around them were being torn down, and they had to make a decision. And all we really know is that at some point, they started to argue. And, um, and it escalated. He stabbed her to death with a kitchen knife and then drove up to an old stripping pit and set himself and his car on fire. Wow. Is it, this is going to sound like a strange question, but is there anything about that that makes sense to you? Like, why couldn't people let go of this place? It is very primal. Beyond that, she really couldn't say why. And we asked Mary Lou, who hung on long after the murder after that referendum, after the town was basically empty. I have no idea what kept me there. I have no idea. You have no idea? Uh-uh, no idea. I just didn't want to move. The other street. Well, you can see the roof on there. See the houses down there? Yeah. Today, 11 people live in town. His brother and his wife. And um, my mom and him live down through the intersection. Tom and Tom pointed them all out from the hill. We knocked on every door. Figured we asked them what it is that keeps them living literally on top of a fire. Hi. Good evening. Wow. That was the shortest. That none of them wanted to talk to us. Not even the dogs. Oh. Okay, all right. But then Tom, too, took us to one last spot. Where are we right now? You're in St. Ignatius Roman Catholic Cemetery. The cemetery is just a few feet away from the hill where we started. And it's a really strange contrast. You go from this steamy hell, and then suddenly you're in, like, woodsy Vermont. It's beautiful. Uh, This is my grandfather and my grandmother. Tom has four generations buried here. Do you know how many people are here, Tom? Uh, There's over 3,000 burials in this cemetery alone. 3,000? Yes, plus. And the thing is, says Tom, even the people that left fled that fire, continue to come back and be buried in this cemetery. Which means this place, this cemetery, is the only thing in Centralia that's still growing. And suddenly, how Joan put it earlier? It is very primal. Made sense. Um, You can experience 
your life on a multi-generational plane. This is where my great-grandparents are buried. Which means, in a sense, this town will never die, as long as the cemetery's still here. I can't even read their name on here. Anymore. This here? This. Dig it out. Oh, it's under the dirt. D-E. Get this up out of here, somehow. See, it's sinking down into the ground. In the, it's in the dirt now. Yeah, see it? There we go. We can see a dent. S-C-Y. Thanks to Pat Walters for reporting that with me, and also to Chris Perkle and Georgie Rowland, who directed a great documentary about Centralia called The Town That Was. You can find out more information about that on our website, radiolab.org. I'm Robert Krilwich. I'm Jad Abumrad. Bye. Hello, this is Joan Quigley. Radio Lab is produced by Jad Abumrad and Brenna Farrell. Our staff includes Ellen Horn, Soren Wheeler, Pat Walters, Tim Howard, and Lynn Levy, with help from Nicole Corey and Sam Roudman. That's all, folks. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.